man. How wonderful that is. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Thank you, Beverly, Jerry, Sharon, and Kaylee for singing with us. If you have your Bibles, which I trust you do, let's go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. I get the feeling Wally might have peeked at my notes, because chapter 8 is exactly where we're going to be this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, we'll be going through verses 21 through 29. John 8, 21 through 29. And if we're able to, I ask you to stand so that we may honor the reading of God's word together. Or is that not why we're here? John chapter 8, 21 through 29. This is what God's word is for us this morning. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said again, He won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you, that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you. But the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things... I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. We're actually going to go one verse ahead. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that in this time that you would go before us, awaken our hearts to your word. May what is heard this morning be not from my lips, but from the word of God. Strengthen us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and may you be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. As we've been following along in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, we're coming out of a discussion that Jesus is having with the Jewish leaders and some of the other Jews at the time. He's just told them that everything that he says from the Father is true. If you look back in 8, verse 14, he says, My testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. 
but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. He's telling him exactly where he's come from, who has sent him, and what it is that he has to say. In our passage this morning, Jesus is continuing his teachings in the temple. His teachings about the source of life that is to be found only in him. He's just finished telling them that the reason they don't know or accept his testimony is because they truly don't know God. They think they know him with all their religious schools, their rabbis, and their teachings, yet they don't even know that they don't know God. If they did, they would find that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one who would bring about God's kingdom. In moving forward in our verse, in verse 21, Jesus opens with an ominously bleak statement. Let's revisit that verse, verse 21. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. This is quite ominous. It's not a very happy way to open a sermon. But this is God's word to the Jews. And Jesus is alluding to something in the future tense. We know as New Testament believers that he's moving to the cross. He's making his way to Calvary to make atonement for our sins. We're not even halfway through the gospel, and yet he's already predicting his departure. And what he's describing by saying, you will look for me and you will die in your sin is a result of not knowing his identity, which is essentially what they're struggling with. They don't comprehend that he is the Messiah. And what this is, is an impending righteous threat from God. I say righteous threat because God, we saying God the just, right? He is the almighty judge. In him is no darkness. He is holy. He is without spot, without blemish, utterly perfect in his holiness. And so what he brings to bear is a righteous threat. If you don't believe in the Son of Man, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will die in your sin. And we might think of you'll die in your sin as something to be cast to the side. We might see it as, oh, that's just something John wrote that the, the rabbis would understand or the Jews would understand at that time. But there is an ominous and foreboding weight to his words. Because those who die in their sin are eternally separated from God. This is not just death. This is not just they die and they go in the ground and they're no more. No, there is much, much more at stake. Those who don't believe in him will die in their sin. This should be an, really a sobering reminder for us of where we were rescued. To 
to deny the very identity of Jesus as God the Father, or as, as God himself, is absolutely terrifying. But the Jews don't grasp this. They don't see that there is no hope if you die in your sin. To die in your sin is final. There is no going back. That is the line that if you cross it upon your death without knowing Jesus, I'm sorry, there's no going back. Because his righteousness alone is what atones for your sins. His righteousness stands in the gap between you and the wrath of God. And on that day, if you're outside of Christ and you find yourself standing before the throne of God's judgment and you move to justify yourself, what will you say? What words could you possibly come up with that could even fractionally excuse yourself before Almighty God? You may look for Jesus to stand beside you saying, Father, he went to church on Sundays. Father, he said a prayer when he was a child and in fact didn't commit any egregious sin like adultery or murder. You will not be standing there pleading your case. No, in fact, he will not be there as your defense counsel. He will publicly disown you. In Matthew 10.33 it says, But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. This isn't just for believers. This is for those who have chased after false religion. For those who say in their heart, there is no God. And this isn't to say that God has no love for them. But this is the future of those who do not trust in Christ. He's making their future very, very clear. Because in the high court of heaven, you will in no way be absolved of your sin based on your own testimony. But instead, you will bear the eternal consequences. What Jesus bore on the cross, what he is going to bear as we progress in John, that is reserved for you, but cast upon him in its fullness, you will end up bearing in the last day. If you are apart from So this is a serious matter that Jesus is bringing to light. This is a weighty appeal that he's making to his listeners. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven by any other means except by the blood of Jesus Christ and by him declaring you righteous before God the Father. The only way. But in spite of all of this, what seems obvious to us flies right over their heads. They've missed it again. And in their confusion, they ask in verse 22. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you 
cannot come. We notice that in their confusion, they're not thinking in the eternal perspective. They're thinking in earthly terms. He's going to kill himself, is he? That's what it sounds like he's saying. He's contemplating suicide as the very climax of his ministry. It has to be. They believe he's talking about committing suicide, which to them was a sin that is regarded as the most heinous. What we, what we would understand as unforgivable. In fact, it is not quite the case. Now, that is not to say that suicide is by any means desirable. And this particular area hits close to home. A, a dear friend of mine, just last week, as I was at a at a conference in, uh, in Beaumont, reached out to me. We had been talking for days, days before. Reached out and had said to me several weeks back that he had a, attempted suicide. And by the grace of God, did not succeed. But let me be clear. The struggle with depression, mental illness, and anxiety even within the hearts and minds of believers, is a terrible struggle. It is a hard-fought battle for those who struggle with these issues of anxiety and depression. I know many people, from my own experience, who have struggled with these things, and it is by no means easy. And it is not because of a lack of faith that they struggle with these things. It's simply humanity. It is simply the nature of fallen man to be in a state and in a condition that would seek to, to harm its very image, the image of God. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. And this should be a comfort. If you know someone who has committed their life to Christ, but who's had these struggles with mental illness and lost the fight, they've gained eternal life. There is hope in Jesus because suicide is not an unforgivable sin. And it's not an easy way out of the struggle of life. They're by no means taking the easy way out in fact, to some they might see it as the only way. And our hearts should be moved with compassion for those in our lives who struggle with this. I rejoice because my friend failed in his attempt. And it isn't the first time that he's attempted. But I thank God that in his grace and in his love and mercy, he withheld the hand of death over my friend. He preserved him. He will preserve us. It's not unforgivable. In fact, Jesus looks on those who suffer with it with compassion. And so should we.
in his words, alternatively, Jesus is describing something in this scene which D.A. Carson notes as an ironic prophecy of Jesus' death. For he goes away by voluntarily laying down his life, not in suicide, but in submission to his Father's will in a violent death meted out by his enemies. He's going away. He's going to the cross. He has a mission, and nothing they will do can detract from that mission. In fact, what they will do in trying to kill him ultimately fulfills that mission. It's ultimately clear. And as we continue in verses 23 and 24, he reiterates what he's already said. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. What he's describing in here is the state of their hearts, hearts of stone. How calloused do they have to be to not see what is in front of them? Jesus makes it clear that the reason for their confusion is because of their opposing origins. What do I mean by that? Jesus is heavenly. He is divine. He is above all things. He is sinless. Yet he is truly human. But his audience, the Jews, the world in which he became incarnate to save, is of this world. They are of sinful origins. We are born in this world with a nature inclined towards sin. It's two worlds. The heavenly realm and fallen creation. Jesus is distinct from creation. He himself is not a created being. Rather, he became incarnate for us, and yet he is not of us. He doesn't have the flaws and the darkness that lays within our hearts. He is perfect. Our inclination is towards sin and self-satisfaction, and therefore, we are in rebellion to our very Creator. We live in the created world, in a fallen created world that is hostile towards God. And in fact, find our home in the darkness. It's for this reason that the Jews are blind to Jesus' teaching. They were born from rebellious sinners, and they will die like rebellious sinners. Apart from Christ, that is their destiny. And if any of us are apart from Christ, we share in that destiny. The late R.C. Sproul noted in his commentary on John, quote, a person who has no faith, the unconverted person, remains in sin. And the worst calamity that could ever befall a human being is to die. 
in that state. The worst calamity that could befall a human being is to die in that state. Truly, the hymn comes to mind how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Right? How deep does his love have to be that these are the kind of sinners, these are the kind of people that he would subject himself to be killed for? That he would suffer as he suffered for us? Through that, he provides the way of life. He said, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What is the reason? Why is it that people will die and be subjected to hell? It's not because God sent them. It is because they have not believed in whom he has sent. The Greek text in some of your Bibles might omit the word he. If you do not believe that I am he, they'll take that out and they'll say, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It's pretty familiar, I am. If I think back in Scripture to where that might have come up, I, I recall Moses in talking directly to him. And the comfort that God chooses to express to Moses is, tell them, I am sent you. And most of the, the little translations will not have that he in there. So what is he saying? He is the tipping point. He is the great I am. We've seen that he's made some a previous I am statement. I am the bread of life in John 6. And he said to us last week, I am the light of the world. In this festival, that's supposed to remind the people of what happened in the wilderness, in Exodus, and in the rest of the law, Yahweh was their bread, sent their bread from heaven. Yahweh was the light that guided them in the darkness by the pillar of fire. And so he's compounding this idea that he is, in fact, he can say, I am, because I am has sent him. Just like I am sent Moses to liberate the people, God the Father has sent Jesus saying, I am has sent me. It's a simple thing to believe, and yet because of the hardness of their hearts and their unwillingness to recognize Jesus, their unwillingness to set aside what they believe to know about God. 
And by doing so, they doom themselves. For those of us here who have not trusted in Christ, that doom is shared. Unless the one who God sent, the one whom I am sent to liberate you out of your bondage to sin has your complete faith. So we continue on in verse 25 and 27. It says, Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you. But the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. The Pharisees certainly didn't understand. And perhaps a reader who is reading John for the first time might not understand. But John clarifies for us. John interjects as the narrator of this gospel saying, by the way, what they don't know is that Jesus talked about the Father. When he says, what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world, he's talking about God the Father. And because of the rebellious hearts, the hardness and callousness of their hearts, they don't believe him. You can't get a clearer answer to the question, who are you? And surely they ought to see this by now. Surely they ought to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, it's Jesus. The ultimate preacher. The ultimate king. The ultimate high priest. Surely they ought to recognize him as Peter recognized him in John 6, 69. You are the Messiah, the Holy One of God. Or you might hear, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's it. How do they not see this? Jesus tells them that he is who he has been claiming to be from the very beginning. And not just from his ministry, but even from the beginning of this gospel. Turn with me back to John chapter 1, verse 18. John 1, verse 18. Look what it says. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Slam dunk. It's so plain. It's so clear. But again, it reveals how darkened people's eyes can be. That for all the light that Jesus shines upon his identity, the darkness of their hearts blinds them to plain truth. Does that mean all hope is lost for them? Certainly not. I certainly believe that the word of God has the power to transform hearts. I certainly believe that 
the word of God is sufficient for all things, whether it be ministry, family, counsel, and care, I certainly believe that the word of God is sufficient for these things. And a hardened heart can be dealt with in many ways. We sang about it earlier. The heart of stone can be melted. In some cases, God may elect to shatter the heart with his hammer and chisel or by complete destruction. And I think Isaiah experienced this. We commented last week, Isaiah stood before the throne of God and he said, I am undone. Talk about a heart that is in shambles before God. Sometimes it will require God to shatter that heart of stone in order to replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh that we have been given, if we are in Christ, with new thoughts and new desires. And we pray for those with hardened hearts that it would not come to that. But ultimately, God will decide how best to work on the heart of stone. And what he's doing here is just that, the words of God. The words of God are being conveyed. And it will have a desired effect, as we'll see at the end of our passage. Jesus continues by telling them that there is much more he could say and judge. But because of his obedience to God, he speaks only what he has heard from the Father. Of course, all things have been given to him. He has all authority. The scripture says that all things were created through him and not one thing was created that has been created was created. Everything that we see in this world that is created came through Jesus Christ. Of course, he has all authority. Of course, he has all things given into his hand, and yet, he speaks only what God the Father has instructed him to speak. Talk about obedience. Only my son at times could do as I instruct him to. It delights God's heart. Obedience by Jesus delights the Father. We'll see in the next passage that he does what pleases God. But that obedience is also required from us to those who believe. We don't simply say, Jesus, I place my faith and trust in yours and my eternity is secure. We can sit on our hands and wait for eternity to come. Friends, that's only a small fraction of the gospel. The gospel saves us. The message of Christ redeems us. For what purpose? Spread the gospel to others. To every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because that ultimately brings him glory. What doesn't bring him glory is his saints sitting on their hands, praying for things to change. When in reality... He has given us the Holy Spirit 
and has called us to be the instruments to proclaim his gospel. The Great Commission doesn't apply only to pastors. It doesn't apply only to missionaries. It applies to everyday Christians, Sunday school teachers, to youth leaders, church secretaries, church maintenance teams. (laughs) Everyone who is in the body of Christ is by default on mission to spread that gospel. The Great Commission is for all believers. Not for some who are utilizing and taking certain roles within the church. The mission belongs to every one of us. And Jesus could pronounce judgment on all their misdeeds right then and there. But he nevertheless speaks only what he hears from God. And everything that Jesus says by virtue of that are in fact the Father's words. The Father's words are his very own. They're indistinguishable. When Jesus speaks, the Father speaks, and the Father speaks through what the Son speaks. They are eternally inseparable. Nothing can divorce it. So what does that mean? When Jesus is saying something that requires a response, what are we to do to respond? And if we don't respond, then that itself is a response. It's choosing to stay within our darkness, to stay in our rebellion and stand on our own justification on the last day. Just as Moses spoke God's words to Israel, so Jesus does to Israel today. He doesn't need to ascend to Mount Sinai to hear from God. As we just read, he himself is God. And when he speaks, the Father speaks. Let's move in verse 28 and 29. He says to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. Again, Jesus alludes to his death. When you lift up the Son of Man, this particular reference, Son of Man, has come up before in Scripture, particularly in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel records a vision that he had in the night, a dream, a vision. It's a vision of the Ancient of Days, or God Almighty, and the Son of Man. This son of man in Daniel's vision is one who's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, which is eternal and indestructible. What we're meant to find here is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel's vision. He will establish his kingdom. He's currently establishing his kingdom by the works of missionaries, by our personal evangelism to those who we know are lost. And on that final day, when he returns in glory, his kingdom will have no end. 
eternal, and indestructible. The lifting up of the Son of Man also refers us back to the Old Testament as well. Numbers chapter 21 is the, the story of Israel still wandering, and Israel complains, not to God, my son complains to me, but they complain against God. And in response to this complaint, to this rebellious heart, he sends poisonous serpents among the camp. And as, as a result of this, many died. Not because they complained, but of who they complained against. God himself, Yahweh, the great I am. But it's not just the judgment he casts, it's actually more than that. There is hope at the end of it. Because he tells Moses to lift up the bronze serpent, and those who look to the serpent that has been lifted up, they're healed and they're saved. This is what Jesus will accomplish. He will be lifted up from the cross for all to see, but only those who look to the cross, look on whom is suspended on that cross, bearing the punishment of Israel's sin for all of our sin, those who look upon him are saved. Through losing, the Son of Man is victorious. Through dying and rising again, we are freed from death, from its grip, and ultimately are welcomed into the eternal life that is found in Christ. The Son of Man is also a picture that we see in Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. Let's go ahead and turn real quick to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah is just one of the places where we find these visions, these prophecies of the Messiah that is to come. And what are Isaiah's words to us regarding the servant of the Lord? Isaiah 42. We'll just look on verse 1. It says, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the to the nations. Who else but Jesus can do this? Who else but Jesus, by virtue of his victory on the cross, his conquering of death, and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, who is going to return in glory to pronounce this judgment? That mission falls to Christ and Christ alone. And he's already accomplished it. And he will bring justice to the nations. We long for that because of all the injustice we see, because of the darkness we see in our world. 
Only Jesus is qualified, worthy, and chosen by God to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 2.2. And by his grace, through faith, we are removed from beneath the wrath of God and his judgment. And what's the result of Jesus' words? Look with me in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Not everyone believed, as we'll see later on in John 9, or excuse me, in John 8. There are some whose faith wavers, who doesn't endure. You could say that there are some false converts in his, in his hearing. Among those who John has said many believed in him, among those many, some don't last longer than the end of the chapter. Many place their faith in him. The, the Greek word for believed can be translated place their faith in, they began to recognize that Jesus was who he said he was. And what we see is an apparent result of what John is intending to write in the first place. John chapter 20, 31. But these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. It's for that purpose which John writes. And this is the call that Jesus is pronouncing to the Jews. Believe on Jesus, the Son of God, so that you might have life in his name. And this is his call for us today. In order to process this call, you have to understand where you stand before God apart from Christ which he tells us in the beginning. You will die in your sin, in your sinful state. But the good news of the gospel, are you ready for this, is that if you believe, place your faith in him, he will be merciful to you, removing you from the aim of God's wrath, and not only that, not only are you not subject to wrath, but you are raised to life. He gives you everlasting life and a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord himself will give to me. And not only to me, but to those who believe. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But those who are among the believing tribe of God are given eternal life, they're removed from wrath, and they're given a crown of righteousness. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus, not a historical entity, not someone who said good things that are probably a good idea for us to listen to? No. If you do not believe that Jesus himself was God 
who accomplished all of these things, he's no better than the Jews who have rejected him. There is no partial belief. You cannot pick and choose what it is about Jesus that you like. Those are not the marks of a true Christian. A true Christian, I say true, a true Christian is one who has cast themselves upon the horns of the altar and pleads with God in fear and trembling for forgiveness. Have you done this? Has the weight of your sin so moved you that you've thrown yourself upon the horns of the altar and begged for forgiveness because you know what your sin bears upon you? A true Christian recognizes their sinfulness and rebellion against God. The one who humbly asks, like the tax collector in Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a good person, a tither, a weekly church attender. No. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was justified. He walked away justified because he pleaded to God whose mercy can absolve you of your sins. Recognize your sinfulness this morning if you have not trusted in Christ in faith. He will save you. He will seal you with the Spirit and bring you into everlasting life. But only by faith in Him faith in Him alone, by His grace alone, in Christ alone. Because the Word of God alone tells us so that we may live for His glory alone to the end of eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, teach us to fear rightly Your ways. Reveal to us the depths of our darkness and our hard-heartedness. Lord, may we who are gathered here recognize our sin and throw ourselves upon your altar. Would you remove the heart of stone from us and give us a heart of flesh? Those of us who trust in you and have our faith in you, Lord, would you continue to renew us, renew our hearts, renew our minds, empowered by your Spirit to preach this gospel to those around us, to not delegate this solely to missionaries and preachers and teachers, but that we may join in that mission with you. Lord, if there are any in this assembly that have not trusted in you for salvation, but I pray that this word, your words, would shake the foundations of their hearts. Open their eyes to see that you alone are the way to everlasting life. That you alone can bear the full penalty of our sins and that you alone can make us righteous. That you can make us holy. We would be honored by our worship, 
your gospel would be central in our lives. Be glorified this morning as we continue to sing in your holy name that is above all other names. We ask this. God's people said,